Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Kate Merriweather, and welcome back to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about a 65-year-old postmenopausal woman with abdominal distension. We're going to be branching into how we evaluate, work up, and manage ovarian and adnexal masses in this patient population. I'm Dr. Kate Merriweather, editor of the OBGYN Beyond the Pearls, and you can tweet at me at Kate Merriweather1. So, our patient today is a 65 year old postmenopausal woman with abdominal distension. For those of you that are following along in the OBGYN Beyond the Pearls book, this is case number 52 on page 350. It was written by Dr. Monica Kumar, who comes to us as an assistant professor in the Division of Gynecologic Surgery at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Let's go right to our patient and evaluate her. So she's a 65-year-old postmenopausal woman and presents to her general practitioner with six months of progressively worsening abdominal pain, early satiety, and abdominal distension. The pain is dull in nature, achy, and constant. It doesn't change with oral intake and is accompanied by a decrease in appetite. She says her clothes haven't been fitting her and she thought she was, quote, just gaining weight, end quote. Her medical history is significant for hypertension, which is well-controlled, and class 1 obesity with a BMI of 31 kgs per meter squared. So what are the next steps in the evaluation of this patient? The differential diagnosis of abdominal pain is obviously very wide and includes pathology involving any organ system in the abdomen, gastrointestinal, genitourinary, vascular, or musculoskeletal, less frequently referred pain from a pulmonary or a cardiac system. The complaints of weight and appetite change in the postmenopausal patient, though, increase the suspicion for more serious pathology, definitely red flags. The next best step for this patient is a full physical examination, and that should include a pelvic examination in any woman with these complaints. So let's go to our physical exam. It confirms a temperature of 37 degrees Celsius, blood pressure of 118 over 76 millimeters mercury, heart rate of 95 per minute, respiratory rate of 20 per minute, and an oxygen saturation of 96% on room air. So very normal vital signs. Her exam is significant for a non-tender distended abdomen with a fluid wave, and a pelvic exam reveals a palpable pelvic mass that is fixed to the rectovaginal septum. 
You order a CA-125 and computerized topography, a CT scan of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis. Her CA-125 is elevated at 1365 units per milliliter. And her CT scan is significant for a peritoneal carcinomatosis with omental cake, ascites, and a left ovarian mass. Let's go to a clinical pearl for steps two and three. Tumor markers obtained in the setting of a suspected intra-abdominal malignancy, like in this patient, especially to postmenopausal women, should include a carcinoembryonic antigen, a CEA, a CA-125, a CA-199, and a CA-2729. CEA is a marker for colorectal cancer. CA-199 is a marker for pancreatic cancer, and CA-27 to 29 is a marker for breast cancer. CA-125 is the most nonspecific of the tumor markers, but it's more specific in postmenopausal women and is used in the diagnosis and the monitoring of treatment of epithelial ovarian cancer. So what are some causes of an elevated CA-125? They are multiple, and you can already see when I'm reading this list why it is that a postmenopausal woman isn't as likely to have as many of these benign causes. So causes of elevated CA-125 are epithelial ovarian fallopian tube and primary peritoneal carcinoma, which we strongly suspect in this patient because of her CT findings, endometrial carcinoma, benign ovarian neoplasms, endometriosis, pregnancy, interestingly, ovarian hyperstimulation, pelvic inflammatory disease, menstruation, cirrhosis, ascites from any etiology, colitis, intra-abdominal abscess or infection, pancreatitis, pleural effusion, pericardial disease, heart failure, recent abdominal surgery, sarcoidosis, lupus, and malignancy of another etiology, including breast, colon, or hematologic cancer. So let's go back to our patient a second. This patient is taking to the operating room for gynecologic oncology. Definitely want a subspecialist to evaluate her surgically. There she is diagnosed with high-grade serous carcinoma of the ovary. A little basic science pearl for you. There are five histological subtypes of epithelial ovarian cancer. There's serous, there's mucinous, there's endometrioid, transitional cell, and clear cell. The most common subtype is a high-grade serous carcinoma which is exactly what this patient has. So how do we stage epithelial ovarian cancer? At the time of diagnosis, the first step for management of any malignancy is determining the stage of cancer. That helps you determine treatment. For ovarian cancer, this is done surgically. The staging procedure includes total hysterectomy, a bilateral salpingoophorectomy, pelvic and periaortic lymphadenectomy, omentectomy, and peritoneal washings. A basic science and clinical pearl, so this applies to steps one, two, and three, cancers can either spread lymphatically, hematogenously by the bloodstream, and by direct extension. Ovarian cancer spreads in all of these manners, but most commonly it's going to spread by direct extension to the peritoneal surfaces and other intra-abdominal organs at the time of diagnosis. So what are the goals for surgery for ovarian cancer? Generally, there's two goals for epithelial ovarian cancer surgery. One is to surgically stage the cancer, as we talked about before, and determine the extent of the spread. And two is to, quote, cytoreduce the tumor to, if ideal, no visible disease. Tumor debulking, sometimes called surgical cytoreduction, is a procedure in which each visible area of tumor in the abdomen is removed. Optimal cytoreduction is defined as all tumor greater than one centimeter being removed. So no single site of tumor left is greater than one centimeter. Studies have shown that there's improved survival in patients that get this surgical outcome, so no tumor greater than one centimeter. 
most recent studies have actually shown that leaving no residual disease, so actually no tumor palpable or visible, improves overall and progression-free survival. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So let's go back to our patient. The gynecologic oncology service performs an exploratory laparotomy, drainage of three liters of ascites. Remember that, that ascites are common with this disease. They do a total abdominal hysterectomy, a bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy, and block resection of the distal sigmoid proximal rectum, stapled reanastomosis of the bowel, so putting it back together after they've taken out some of that sigmoid and proximal rectum, They do an omentectomy, diaphragm stripping, and pelvic and periaortic lymphadenectomy. At the end of the procedure, there's no visible tumor in the abdomen. So fortunately, she's got an optimal cytoreduction. She has a stage 3C high-grade serous carcinoma of the ovary. She would like to know her future options for treatment. So a little basic science pearl for you for step one. The log-kill hypothesis provides the theoretical underpinnings for why cytoreductive surgery like this patient got, leads to better outcomes in ovarian cancer. It states that chemotherapy is able to kill the same proportion of tumor cells as opposed to the same absolute numbers of cells, regardless of the size of the tumor at the chemotherapy initiation. So if you're starting with a smaller tumor, you've got a smaller number of cells so that you can get a greater proportion of them killed. Little clinical pearl, when someone is diagnosed with epithelial ovarian cancer, like this person is, 60 to 70% of patients are diagnosed with stage 3 or 4 cancer, like this patient is. Remember, she's 3C. Uh, This is due to the lack of symptoms, and there's not a lot of reliable screening tests for this cancer, so a lot of uh, people are diagnosed late. In fact, it's really hard to get specimens from patients in stage 1 or 2 disease or early disease because it's very hard to recognize those folks. So is there an alternative treatment to primary debulking surgery for advanced epithelial ovarian cancer? Could this patient have gotten a treatment other than her surgery? The first step to management of a patient with advanced ovarian cancer is sort of to determine if neoadjuvant chemotherapy or a primary debulking surgery is the most appropriate. So you've got two choices. This must be individuals to the patient and the center at which the patient is being seen. Some factors used to decide this are the extent of the tumor that you see on CT. Remember, this person had a lot evidence of disease outside the abdomen, evidence of comorbidities, functional status, age, and evidence of venous thromboembolism at the time of diagnosis. At the time of primary debulking surgery, the first step of the surgery is to determine whether or not an optimal or complete cytoreduction is even feasible. Can you even do it like it was done in this patient? This can be done laparoscopically or through a mini laparotomy, and the approach is, of course, determined by surgeon expertise and the center preference. So if you have a surgeon that's an expert, and laparoscopic debulking, great. If you don't, you're going to do a laparotomy like this patient got. A little clinical pearl, primary debulking surgery is when a patient's first treatment is surgery, meaning it's done before the administration of any chemotherapy. Chemotherapy given after the surgery is termed adjuvant chemotherapy because it's added to surgery. Neoadjuvant chemotherapy is chemotherapy given before the surgery. So again, adjuvant means it's added to surgery. Neoadjuvant means it happened before the surgery. 
Surgery performed after chemotherapy for ovarian cancer is called interval debulking surgery. So if you had chemotherapy and then later surgery to debulk more, that would be called interval debulking surgery. So let's go back to our patient a second. This patient is hospitalized for five days after her complete cytoreduction and she gets discharged home. She follows up three weeks after surgery with gynecologic oncology to discuss chemotherapy. So what are the chemotherapy options for patients with advanced, high-grade serous carcinoma of the ovary, like this lady? Adjuvant chemotherapy is recommended for patients following a primary debulking surgery for epithelial ovarian cancer. It improves survival and outcomes. Chemotherapy consists of a platinum-containing regimen, most commonly carboplatin and paclitaxel. In general, six cycles of chemotherapy are given, and each cycle is 21 days. A gynecologic oncology group uh, study, a GOG study, that's a large multi-center gynecology study group, demonstrated progression-free survival and overall survival benefit with intraperitoneal, sometimes called IP chemotherapy, of 15.9 months. And a Japanese GOG study of dose-dense chemotherapy demonstrated improved survival of 38.3 months. So these are big changes in survival. Both are being compared to standard chemotherapy as opposed to intraperitoneal chemotherapy. So IPE chemotherapy and dose-dense chemotherapy are currently being compared to each other in a GOG study, which may be out by the time we write our next edition of this book. Little basic science pearl about carboplatin. Carboplatin is a DNA adducting agent. It intercalates into replicating DNA, specifically in the S phase of the cell cycle, and it causes DNA double-stranded breaks. Paclitaxel, in contrast, is a taxane derivative and is a topoisomerase 2 inhibitor, which means it inhibits the enzyme that recoils the DNA strands during the M phase of the cell cycle. So what happens to this patient? This patient goes on to receive chemotherapy in a dose-dense fashion for six cycles. Remember, that's the one that's been proven to improve survival 38.3 months over standard chemotherapy in that Japanese GOG study. During her chemotherapy, her CA125 drops to normal, so less than 35 units per milliliters, considered normal, after just three cycles of chemotherapy, and it remains normal through the completion of chemotherapy. So what does this patient do after that? After completion of chemotherapy and with normalization of tumor markers of her cancer, in this case her CA125, because that's the one that's relevant to her epithelial ovarian cancer, this patient is considered in a state of no evidence of disease, or NED. She's now going to undergo surveillance for recurrence. Surveillance is done with a clinical history and exam every three months for the first two years. Following CA-125 every three months is optional and warrants discussion between the patient and provider. Routine imaging isn't recommended and should only be performed when prompted by clinical symptoms, exam, or a change in the CA-125 that's unexpected. Let's go over some side effects of chemotherapy that this patient might be experiencing. So carboplatin and paclitaxel being the relevant ones here. Carboplatin, remember that's the DNA adducting agent, has common side effects of bone marrow suppression, fatigue, and nausea emesis. Less common things could be skin rash, problems with kidneys, changes in hearing, hair loss, changes in vision, or changes in taste. Paclitaxel, so that's the taxane derivative, that's a topoisomerase 2 inhibitor, also has common side effects of bone marrow suppression, but it also commonly will cause myalgias, muscle aches, and peripheral neuropathy, as well as hair loss. So that's the one that's more commonly going to cause people to lose their hair, sort of the classic side effect that we associate with a lot of chemotherapy. Less commonly, paclitaxel will cause allergic reactions, nausea emesis, diarrhea, palpitations, or finger or toenail changes. Kind of interesting. 
So let's go beyond the pearls. Let's get some extra information here. In a patient with a clinically apparent stage 1 ovarian cancer, remember how rare I said those are, periaortic lymphadenectomy will find metastasis and upstage the patient to a 3A in 30% of cases. So that makes them even rarer when they were apparently stage 1 to begin with. The origin of high-grade serous carcinoma of the ovary is now established to be the fallopian tube, most commonly the fimbriated end, so it actually doesn't come from the ovary at all. Precursor lesions are to high-grade serous carcinomas can be found in the fallopian tube and are called serous tubal intraepithelial carcinomas, or STICS, S-T-I-C-S. Several centers use a laparoscopic approach to evaluate the ability to debulk at the time of a primary surgery. One such scoring tool, the Fugatti score, looks at the presence of or absence of peritoneal carcinomatosis, omental cake, mesenteric retraction, diaphragmatic carcinomatosis, bowel infiltration, stomach infiltration, and liver metastasis to make this Fugatti score. Then, with only the laparoscopic incision having been done, they can predict the ability to completely cite or reduce the ovarian cancer either with continued laparoscopy, if they have those capabilities, or with an open incision. If they decide with the Fugatti score that it cannot be optimally cited or reduced, they might consider going to neoadjuvant chemotherapy and then an interval surgery. Paclitaxel is derived from the yew tree and is given in a a diluent called cremophore. This cremophore, rather than the drug itself, is often the cause of the hypersensitivity reactions during infusion. Preventing those reactions is important since patients are pre-treated with corticosteroids and histamine blockers before paclitaxel infusion to prevent the cremophore causing that. Randomized control trials demonstrate equivalent oncologic outcomes between primary surgery and neoadjuvant chemotherapy. But these trials had really low rates of optimal and complete cytoreduction, so those results might be different in a population of patients that can be cytoreduced. A study performed in England demonstrated that early identification of elevated CA125, as opposed to diagnosing recurrence by identification of, say, a suspicious symptom, showed no difference in overall survival. That's unfortunate. An early identification with CA125 was associated with longer chemotherapy and a worsened quality of life. That's why monitoring with CA125 every three months is considered optional at this point. So let's do a summary of this case. We met a postpenopausal woman who presented with symptoms of abdominal pain, early satiety, and abdominal distension. She had a history and physical exam that was concerning for malignancy and an elevated CA-125 biomarker and a CT scan that confirmed the suspicion. The patient undergoes surgery to stage the ovarian cancer and to cytoreduce or debulk the cancer, and she got cytoreduced optimally to no gross residual disease. After surgery, she was given carboplatin and paclitaxel chemotherapy for six cycles, during which time her CA-125 went back to normal, so she was considered NED. Following completion of surgery and chemotherapy, she was free of disease and underwent surveillance for recurrence. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.